Rugby Football Show. Today, Liverpool hosts Southampton and Jeremy Corbyn at Anfield for match featuring loads of rampant reds, a controversial switch in the number 10 role and completely ineffective opposition. Corbyn. Nope, got nothing. Anyway, we ran up that game and all the rest of the weekend's action and have a big look forward to the Carabao Cup and more, plus news from Europe in this Totally Football Show. Yep, special Chaz Hodges tribute edition this week, Totally Football Show uh, with Rabbit, if you will, provided by a very special lineup. It's a happy new year to Raphael Honigstein, Thank you. who joins us from the year 5,779. That's correct. All right. How's it going for you so far, Raph? It's been good so far, yes. Great, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Michael Cox also here. Hi, James. And Michael, you and I have a hot date tonight. Yeah, with other people involved in watching, which is peculiar but looking forward to it <laughs> it's all right listeners he's only talking about totally football show live at the south bank center the uh, the premier event tonight at the south bank center why are there others it's the fifa best awards i believe okay all right at a bay aka ghost goal joins us hot from wolverhampton sort of london okay. from yeah. london <laughs> do you live in london adam i live Sometime in London, sometime Wolverhampton, okay. splitting my time between the two. All right, major then, metropolis of. The you country. were at Old Trafford on Saturday. That much I know. Yes, big six pointer that was drawn. Yeah, there ain't no yeah. pleasing moo to you know continue our Chas and Dave uh, theme. And also joining us on a totally football show debut is Melissa Reddy, senior football correspondent from Joe, and of course a prized contributor for all sorts of noted podcasts. Entities such as the, the Anfield, Anfield Rap, Five Live things and, and, and that anyway. But you went to Anfield this weekend. Yeah, uh, a really weird one. Uh, Liverpool changed their shape. They decided to go 4-2-3-1, which they haven't done before. And it was more interesting because they actually didn't have a chance to work on the shape in training because of the, the weather conditions. Um, and you could tell, actually, because they were very open. They struggled without their third midfielder in there, and Shakiri had a free roll. But I think it actually worked for them in a sense that against a Southampton side that were determined to not give them any space and to basically, you know, set up a blockade at Anfield, that extra attacker meant that Liverpool could go 3-0 up and then just control the game. Southampton didn't ever have, even though Liverpool were open, too open in the first half by Jurgen Klopp's standards, Southampton didn't have enough to hurt them. So that whole first half formation was entirely due to the adverse wind conditions? No, he wanted to to play that shape because they knew Southampton were going to be obstructive, but they didn't get a chance to work on it. And right. you could tell that everyone wasn't really comfortable with the shape. It took Southampton by surprise. 
they just couldn't deal with having another I mean when you've got Mane, Firmino and um, Salah to worry about that's enough of a headache and then you've got Shakiri roaming all over the place and he's so unpredictable and yeah 45 minutes that that was game over when Shakiri got taken off which was you know he contributed two goals and, and, and got pulled uh, it seemed like the life of the game followed him as well it wasn't fun anymore after that but mm. Liverpool are serious now, and I think that substitution and the way they control the game in the second half proved that. All right. How long have you been watching Liverpool for, Melissa? Uh, since I was six years old. All right. I don't know how long that is, but let me ask <laughs> you, uh, is this the best Liverpool you've ever seen? It is the most complete Liverpool side I've okay. watched. Um, I think 2008-2009 had a really strong spine, but you always looked at Liverpool and felt there was just something missing, one thing. And I think at the moment... You, you don't get that sense. It's a really good goalkeeper, one of the best centre-backs in Europe, the most explosive forward line on the continent, steel in midfield, greater depth and a really charismatic manager. Melissa, do you get the sense that teams of the calibre of Southampton now start going to Liverpool almost fearing result, that it's almost a foregone conclusion that they were not going to get anything from this game? Yeah, I think Mark Hughes's post-match uh, comments were quite instructive because he said at 3-0, we're just thinking damage limitation. And the way he set his team up to obstruct rather than to, to provide any sort of threat of their own, I think, because, you know, without Danny Ings, who's been so good for them this season, I think they knew they lacked bite up front. So from the start of the game, it was let's not concede too many and once the three happened it was like whoa let's not concede anymore and he touched on that after the game and said you know teams will come here and will get a lot worse done to them this season so we're content with basically drawing the second half right mark hughes in content shock um what did you make of the remarkable uh, hooking of Shakiri after he contributed assists for two goals, Michael. Was it okay because it was for Milner, who everyone loves? Yeah, I really like that, actually, because it was just Klopp saying, you know, the game is won, let's shut down the game, and nothing really happened second half, did it? And I think that's... I mean, my concern about Liverpool in terms of winning the title is still in terms of whether they're going to have the energy to play that way throughout the season. So if you only need to play half the game, that's fantastic. Mm. Remind me a little bit of, of Arsenal under Wenger when, when they were winning titles. They'd win the game in 20 minutes and, and the you know the next 70 were just energy conservation. Um, I think it's interesting what Melissa says about this being the best team since 2008, 2009, because I think Liverpool have been a little bit unfortunate in the sense that those two teams have been up against really, really good sides. Yeah. The United side who just won the treble probably got better the next year. City have just won 100 points. Maybe they've got better this season. I mean, I think this Liverpool team or that previous Liverpool team probably would have won the title six or seven times mm. in the kind of nine years between those. You, you look at that Manchester United team, the last one under Ferguson, even the two City teams I don't think were all-time great sides, whereas this Liverpool side is is really, really a, a serious contender. Right, OK. Of course, Shakiri lucky to get 45 minutes if, if you look at it from Fabinho's point of view. When's he going to have a look in, do you think, Melissa? Well, Wednesday's a great opportunity <laughs> against Chelsea. Uh, he's only played a minute so far. So, yeah, Shakiri can, can count himself lucky. Uh, but I think he just needs to get up to speed with the system. It's so taxing and demanding. And I think what we've seen from the games in the Premier League already this season is if you switch off for five, ten minutes or if you're not at 100%, you know, for even the shortest spell in a game, you can get punished Chelsea against West Ham was an example of Chelsea just not being 
intense enough to to force an opening started playing out of desperation and if you bringing a new player into such a competitive environment when your ambitions are at the absolute highest it is a risk so i think easing him in as andy robertson and doxley chamberlain were last season mm. is a smart decision we'll talk about chelsea's performance at the london stadium in a second but melissa do you have an update on virgil van dyke's uh, health as liverpool approach this very arduous month yeah he uh damaged or got a bruise to his ribs before the the PSG game and took another knock to it against Southampton so it's nothing serious he was never going to play on Wednesday so a little bit of rest for him and I think he should be fine for the weekend all right Wednesday when they take on Chelsea the first of two encounters in the space of a week a Chelsea team fresh from their first goalless game under Maurizio Sarri did you see this game Adam I did yes it was uh West Ham had the better chances and, and could have won it. I think it was a game that showed some of the flaws in this Chelsea team that kind of they've hinted at them in the first few games, but they've won all the games obviously up till now. Jorginho played the record amount of passes in the Premier League game, mm. more than twice as many as anyone else on the pit on the pitch, which I think is unusual. So he attempted 180 passes, which works out to one every 30 seconds. Yeah. Now is that not an entirely positive thing? It basically means that everything's going through him, doesn't it? It was really striking that that happened because nobody else made 100 passes. So it was almost like everything had to go to him and then out to someone else, which you get people talk to as playmakers these days, but they're often not particularly playmakers. The ball just comes to them. They create more than other players. Whereas this was actually Jorginho. Everything had to go through him. And I think Gary Neville said on commentary that he actually passed the ball poorly. Yeah. Which was strange because, yeah, I mean, maybe that's just because he had it so much. And I think that's a concern that they're so reliant on him that he's going to have games where he, he can't unlock it. Mm. A few other things, I thought Kante, uh, everyone's been intrigued by seeing him further up the field. And this was probably that game where the, the chances fell to him. And he's not he's not that player. He's not going to score 15 goals from midfield. And also Hazard, I thought, was obviously the best player. He's probably my favourite player in the Premier League. But you sort of looked at him, does he... Does he want to score goals quite as much as other players? There were a couple of flicks he attempted when he was clean through. And yeah, it was just one of those games where you feel like two points dropped, but Yarmolenko had the the best chance of the game. Absolutely. And West Ham deserve credit for their shape, I'm guessing? Yeah, I mean, part of their plan was to let Jorginho have the ball. I think that was very obvious. Antonio was up front, but wasn't dropping back onto him. He was staying as a counter-attacking threat. I mean, I think that is the kind of crucial storyline and the crucial debate at the moment. A lot of Chelsea fans are, are quite confused at why Kante, having played so well in that deep position, mm. um, has been moved higher up the pitch. Personally, I think a potential solution is Kante actually dropping out the team altogether. And we've got Fabregas to come back. Fabregas, Jorginho and, and Kovacic is an incredibly creative midfield. Yeah, um, I can't really see the argument for putting Kante in the deep position, I've got to say. I mean, he's, really? so, he's so good defensively he's, he was excellent for a Leicester side and a Chelsea side that played very defensively and counter-attacking but if you're going to have all the possession as Chelsea are this season you're better off having Jorginho in that role so too far up the field to actually make a difference and stop in the counter-attacks as yeah well, so. I, I just think Kante finds himself under one of the worst managers he could be playing under really well Maurizio Sarri made the point contrasting his development with with Chelsea to that of Liverpool under Klopp and okay. I think it's it's a fair one I think to Changed so dramatically from contest football to Sari ball is always going to take time. Is always going to t- uh, throw up one or two unconvincing performances, especially after a Europa League excursion to far flung uh, lands with um, uncertain departure slots. So Greece, yes, yeah. 
um, their plane was delayed, so they only got back very, very late oh, did on they? Friday. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I wouldn't worry so much. I think, if anything, I think they're slightly ahead of schedule, um, conversely, uh, as a team, and play better than than I expected them. I thought they may be a little bit disjointed because it's so difficult to play possession football and pressing and do both really well. Usually, one of the two suffers immediately, um, as we've seen with Liverpool for a number of years almost before they got it right completely. Right. Uh, Rafa, Jurgen Klopp's uh, record in terms of silverware at Liverpool um, needs improving. Yes. Will he be committing a full-strength team, Virgil van Dijk, apart for this midweek Carabao Cup clash? I doubt it very much that it'll be a full-strength team. Um, there would have been changes anyway, even if that, this had been sort of a run-of-the-mill Premier League game. And I think the squad now is big enough to make changes, at least two or, two or three a, a game without necessarily anyone saying, you know, he's weakening the starting eleven. Jordan Henderson will be out, Milner will be out, uh, Wijnaldum might be out. So midfield offers you possibilities for, for rotation and up front. You've got four, maybe five players for three positions if you can't start just well. So I think it'll be maybe not the B team, but one or two more of the sort of Shakiri Sturridge type players will, will come in, I'm sure. Mm, exciting. OK, well, after this, let's talk about events at Old Trafford as Man United hosted Wolves. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Man United won, Wolves won. Nobody won, Adam. You were there. I was, yeah. Uh, James Render says, did United really compete or do they need to show they were hungry like the Wolves? Nice. James That's Render. what Mourinho said. He was oh, not impressed with the attitude at all. Yeah, Yeah, but I don't know if he was making a Duran Duran reference. Like no, he, James didn't, he didn't go that far. But no. <laughs> Yeah, I thought Wolves had more shots on target. I thought they were more than held their own. And the problems at United, I mean, they'd won three games in a row going into this one, but I think the problems are still obvious and it's not just it was actually the attack that was the issue against Wolves um, so all the stuff about would Alderweireld and Maguire make the difference I think the result would have been very similar because they just didn't have any pattern of play in the attack in third right um, Wolves by contrast looked really composed and re- kept it I mean I, I thought they looked really impressive very simple but very direct and and you know were, were perhaps unfortunate not to get more out of the game you were boldly predicting a top eight finish last time you were in. Would you care to revise that now? No, I don't think so. It's It's gone better than probably some of the fans expected. I think a lot of people have been impressed by Nevers and Matinho and the way they... Mm. You know, it's quite an exciting team in some of the players they've got, but it's actually the control that's striking with Wolves. They've conceded the fewest clear-cut chances apart from Liverpool this season. They've conceded two in the last four. And they kind of... Everyone knows their job in that team and they always keep at least five players behind the ball. So while I think they look exciting, perhaps on highlights, they actually can control the game without the ball, and that that's probably the big the big thing for them. Very nice. I wonder if there's a point where Jose will feel he has to adjust his his tactics to perhaps a slightly different Premier League to how it used to be when he won it. Uh, certainly when he won it first time up with Chelsea, I think the idea that you can just sit back and wait for teams to kind of fall apart and their chaotic attempts to to chase an equaliser or a winner is no longer so fruitful because you have teams that can play real football and will enjoy actually having the ball in midfield and will be very careful with it and will open you up uh, especially if your individual players at the back are not that amazing to go up against these one-we-one challenges mm. Pogba obviously made the point you wonder how much of that is politics and how much he actually believes in it when he criticizes United's uh, 
failure to attack and failure to press. Uh, it's probably a mixture of both. But it is certainly a, a way of playing that doesn't seem to suit anymore. I thought Pogba was actually one of their better players and it was his. It was a lovely cushion pass for Fred's goal. But I think Sanchez is an issue. He doesn't seem to have right. any combination play with the full-back. Or yeah, from... everyone piling on to Sanchez. Highest paid player in British football history and significantly when Mourinho went chasing a goal after Wolves had equalised, he took him off. Yeah, having not played him in midweek, so surely that wasn't the plan. Right. Uh, um, Luke, he, he doesn't seem to have any relationship with Lukaku either, which I think is important. I know he set up a goal for him against Burnley, but Lukaku just couldn't get into the game, even though he was up against a... No shots from the big Belgian. Dan Talentire says, Moura came to Spurs in January and looks to have benefited now because of it. Alexis did the same to United and he somehow looks worse. And Thomas, meanwhile, asking, Sanchez, wrong manager, wrong formation, or just passed his best? What do you think? I think a bit of all of those. Right. I think there was a suggestion the last season at Arsenal when his form dipped a little bit, that it was just because he was unhappy. Now you look at it and he looks a completely different player from the one who scored 30 goals for Arsenal his last full season there. And I just wonder whether we're ever going to see him be that player that they want him to be. Yikes. Yeah, just on Pogba, if I can go back to him. Um, I don't have anything to say about Sanchez other than what Adam said. I thought it summed him up because he played very well, as Adam says, and his touch for Fred's goal was fantastic. But His touch for the Mourinho goal was pretty useful. Well, it was so frustrating because... There was just no need to do that in that situation. It was such an obvious thing where he had a backwards pass to the centre-back, keep possession going. And it was so... It wasn't just the fact he lost the ball. It was quite pathetic, I thought, the way he lost the ball. And I think that's the sort of thing that frustrates Mourinho because he even said in the press conference that he'd warned the players about Neves and Moutinho nicking the ball in midfield. And that's how they got their goal against West Ham the previous week. So things where the manager specifically told them that's the problem to avoid and that they concede. It felt like a clash or a clash of contrasts, I would say, because like you you pointed out, Wolves knew exactly what they needed to do in possession and out of it, were very aggressive, quite assertive. And United were waddling through the game often without any sort of coherent approach or strategy. Um and, you know, as much as you can continuously fault the players, which which Mourinho has done, I think everything we've discussed goes back to the point that this is not Manchester United anymore. It doesn't feel like Manchester United, doesn't play like Manchester United. Nothing about it screams that. And the fact that a Wolves side can go there, you know, with their mm. backs out, chest out, just shows that they don't have that fear factor anymore what, and, and that's dangerous. What was the mood like at Old Trafford? It was OK. There was groans when Sanchez knocked the ball out of play from that free kick towards mm. the back end of the first half. There wasn't any screams of attack, attack, attack and that sort of thing. They were pushing, right. doing all the pushing in the last 20 minutes. Even Sir Alex was keeping his cool, was he? Yes. And, yeah. But I, I think what Melissa says about kind of the, the, away, the approach to the game... There's talk about Fellaini being the plan B, but he had the best chance of the game. He's almost the plan A. I don't know what plan A is at United at the moment. All right, OK. Can we talk about Adama Traore? Always. Always. OK, so no one had more attempts on goal than him, and he came on in the 75th minute. This is a bit like that stat the other day where he had the most successful dribbles in the Premier League, despite the fact that he'd only he'd been in about 90 yeah, minutes of action. previous two appearances, he'd had the most dribbles after coming on. Right. Uh, he had three chances in stoppage time in this game. I think he's pushing for a start, but I don't think Nuno wants to change the team. He's played the same team all six games and he likes to be able to introduce him later on against tiring legs. Is he a genuine threat or is he just very, very good at running at people? 
I think his decision making is improving, but it's still erratic, and he's always probably going to be that way. But you can't. There's not really anything you can do to stop a threat like that. All right. Every day is a school day, as you know, and I learned this weekend that Nuno Espirito Santo was Mourinho's backup goalkeeper back in, you know, the glory years at Porto. Did you, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think he's up against Lampard as well, obviously, in the yeah, week, so nice back-to-back. Uh... Old kind of, you know, former players. Yeah, so, yeah, Lamps' derby are at Old Trafford this Tuesday. Wolves, also in the Carabao Cup, they'll be hosting Leicester. Have you seen much uh, derby, Adam? I haven't really, no. And Michael, have you seen much Derby? No, OK. I mean, I've never really watched the Championship, but I like the no. fact Adam just doesn't bother now. Wolves are not in there. There's no, there's no need. <laughs> right. Wow. Sounds like we all need to listen to the Totally Football League show because I bet Caroline Barker and co are going to be all over the extraordinary Frank Lampard's uh, Derby team. Other League Cup fixtures include Oxford United hosting Man City oh, and Spurs Watford. Oh, we'll talk about Watford shortly because you went to their game at Craven Cottage. Yeah, didn't you, I did. Yeah, yeah. Hold off on that though. Okay, we'll do some other bits first. I can barely, but I will. <laughs> he lines up to hit it, and yes, it's deflected for a corner. That's over twelve corners. Yes, <clears throat> no time to take it though. It's finished nil nil. What a result! Sorry, our fault. You see, with same-game multi-bets from Paddy Power, you can combine multiple selections from one match into one bet, and you'll get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold same-game multi-bet lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match four-fold same-game multi-bets on UK and top European leagues. Max free bet £10 per customer per day. Minimum odds. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Listener, if you're coming along to Totally Football live in London tonight, perhaps you were meaning to go to FIFA's The Best but have now decided there's a better option just next door, then you can contribute a question with the hashtag TFSLive. And by the way, even if you're not coming along, you can follow all of the fun by following us on Instagram at The Totally Show on The Gram. show will be kicking off 8 o'clock tonight at Queen Elizabeth Hall. Maybe one or two tickets still available on the door. Do come along if you'd like. Of course, next Friday, we're up in Manchester. That's Rory Smith, Daniel Story and James Horncastle. And C-Tickets have details of that, SEE.com. Mentioned the Totally Football League show. And, of course, on Tuesday morning, you can also enjoy the Totally Scottish Football show. And, boy, they've got a lot to talk about at the moment given that Celtic lost this weekend. They're off to their worst start in 20 years. They're down in... Do you know where they are in the SPL, Adam? Below Hearts. Sixth place. Admittedly, Hearts, who are on top, is you know, despite dropping points this weekend, uh, they are five points clear, and the next five teams are all within one point of each other. But Rangers are currently in second place, then Hibs, then Livingston, then Kilmarnock, who beat Celtic this weekend, and then Brendan Rodgers' team. Wow. Rangers and Celtic, of course, did have positive results in the Europa League. Celtic winning 1-0 at home to Rosenberg. Rangers drawing 2-2 at Villarreal, which is a very decent result. Two away goals there. Anyway, all that sort of thing you can hear about and and, and, and why Celtic and, and why Rangers and, and why Hearts, above all. You can find all that kind of thing out from Andrew Slaven & Co. in the Totally Scottish Football Show, which is going to be out um, sort of late Monday, early Tuesday. On the subject of the Europa League... You'll be heartened to know that Benjamin Kololi is fine. Did you see uh, he's uh, the FC Zurich midfielder 
who ran off the pitch across the running track and then hurdled a little wall to celebrate with the fans only to disappear from sight because there wasn't the floor where he thought it was going to be. But apparently he was all right. That's good news. Yeah. Now, at this point, we can either talk Premier League, Michael, or we can go continental with such delights as Jovinho running 82 metres to score for Palmer. Which do you fancy? I mean, I'd prefer Premier League, but oh. I feel like I'm being tempted down a different path. Yes, you mm. are. There's so many delights down that path, including the Bundesliga, Rafa, where, yeah, Bayern Munich are top, etc. and so on. But the side that was the revelation of the German top division last year, Schalke, finishing second from top, are now second from bottom. What's no, going on? They're bottom. Oh, and they, now yeah. they're bottom. Four defeats in a row Yikes. for Domenico Tedesco. He got one point against Porto in the Champions League. That's the only point that, uh, that they have. doesn't count domestically, of course. And uh, they've got a difficult game away to Freiburg on Tuesday night. And he could go 5-5 five and five as far as defeats is concerned, which is something that his predecessor, Markus Weinziel, did. And, uh, of course, he didn't survive that long in the job. I don't think there's any real danger for him, but it's a perfect illustration of a league that is completely unpredictable from Bayern downwards. So mm. you have Schalke in the bottom, you have Leverkusen just outside the uh, relegation places, you have Leipzig in, in nowhere land, and then you have some strange teams, inverted commas, like Hertha in second, Werder Bremen in fourth. So I think it explains why, despite its, its very low standing internationally, which is deserved, I think, because of the poor performances uh, of of teams in Europe and of that lack of um, competitiveness for for the title, domestically the fans are just more just as excited as they ever been because you simply don't know if you've had a Bremen fan, your team might be playing for Champions League places or against relegation or both in the same season. Right. So, so it contains its its it keeps its um, capacity to throw up really strange seasons all the time. But particularly this one, by the looks of it, any particular reason why that would be? Is it you know, lack of investment or too much investment? Or I don't know. It's only four games in, so things will, will still change. Right. But I think what is remarkable is that a lot of the, the so-called big sides have, have been really disappointing. I mean, even Dortmund, who are okay in terms of results, under Lucien Favre, the new manager, people felt that he was going to immediately improve the team. It's taken a lot more time than anticipated. Uh, Leipzig, with Ralf Rangnick back in charge, are really struggling to play any sort of decent football. Um, the same can be said of Schalke, of course. And uh, even Stuttgart, who were tipped by many as sort of Europa League contenders, they're um, also in the relegation zone. So, wow. is it because all the good German managers have left for the Premier League? Um, some of them have left. Some of them have left for uh, League A. But oh yeah. I think management is not the issue, but there is certainly a lack of consistency for the bigger sides. And you wonder at what point the Bundesliga will go back to have a kind of a more stable top four, which I think might not be ex as exciting, but will will then have a positive effect as far as European performances are concerned. The Premier League's uh, big dominance in Europe came on the back of, I think, six or seven years where the same teams always qualified for the Champions League. And that kind of experience and money, of course cannot be easily re replaced if you suddenly have Hoffenheim in the Champions League you know for the first time I think they will probably struggle despite a decent start to get out of the group and then Schalke have the same issue mm. so it's going to be difficult I think for the league to get back to where they were five years ago when they had two two teams in the final of course right 
And, and what about Bayern themselves, one of those two teams? Because so, they had a good result last week, uh, midweek, away at, at Benfica. Yeah. But it raised, I think, a lot of eyebrows how they didn't make a big move in the, in the summer and transfer. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a strange one. I think they're keeping their, their powder dry for the big change when Robin and Ribéry finally do retire at the end of the season, which they might not because they're playing really well again. Um, at which point Bayern really, I think, have to invest quite heavily in the team. Right now, something quite unexpected has happened, which is the big improvement has come through the coach. When Niko Kovac came in, a lot of people were hugely underwhelmed. They said, you know, what has he done? Nothing really. Okay, he won the cup with Frankfurt against Bayern. Yes, okay, nice result. But they play the game 100 times. Bayern will, will, will win 85, a bit of a fluke. And the players, I think, themselves were a little bit... Um, let's say, apprehensive of this change. But he's won them over, not because he is um, a guy with a glittering CV, but he has just done little things tactically that have worked. And Josu Kimmich came out and said, maybe it doesn't really matter so much what you've done in the past, but what you actually do tactically. And uh, I thought it was an interesting thing to say for a player because he seemed to be saying that we might have had big names in the past, but not all of them have done the work that we as a team felt we need to do mm. and Bayern look a lot sharper um, they look a lot more coherent tactically and you take their quality which individually and collectively is, is far above anyone else and then you add that bit of extra that they seem to have lost since Guardiola left and basically makes for a combination that makes their lead completely unassailable uh, Michel Reschke the sporting director of Stuttgart said uh, when they played against Bayern the other day, after one minute we knew against this Bayern team we have absolutely no chance of getting any result. Because if Ooh. they play with that kind of motivation, commitment, organisation, then we have no chance. Rafa, where do you actually rate this Bayern team against some of the other top sides in, in Europe, especially you know when you look at uh, City and, and Liverpool? It's the, the question that everyone's asking themselves because it's difficult to evaluate their performances because... Wolves? I think they could be wolves, yes, but it's difficult to evaluate their performances because they're so superior. So at once, at certain stage, you don't, you no longer really know what it is. Is it really because only in relative terms they're so far better, yeah. or are they actually objectively so much better? I think last year, where they had a very easy run and then pushed Real Madrid all the way to the semi-final, would suggest that they are objectively still a pretty decent side. Um, I saw that bookmakers rate them really highly above some of the, the bigger sides even. And maybe that's a reflection of, again, another easy draw that they have in the group stage. Mm. But I think they have something this year where they look at the details and they have in Thiago, someone who plays now in a deeper role, who is making a huge difference because basically teams have stopped pressing them altogether because they know there's just no point. You can't press, you can't press Thiago. The guy just steps away from you and you have three guys who are out of the game, and it makes them even harder to play against. So I think Liverpool would be the sort of team that Bayern would hate playing against, whereas City, they probably feel that they've got a decent chance because if they keep the ball off City, I think Bayern feel that they could do something. So, it, yeah, there is not much between those teams, and the question will once again uh, will be when it comes to these bigger games. In March or... Yeah, yeah whether Bayern's lack of competitiveness mm. domestically, a competitive um, challenge is a benefit or is is a disadvantage because they're not as sharp, etc. But we will only find out in a few months' time. Uh, excellent. Hey, uh, Michael, let's take back control. Let's have some proper English football now. We'll, we'll get on to that Jovinho <laughs> thing later on and all the other exciting 
details of uh, of the Continental weekend, but a uh, pretty special weekend in the Premier League as well from the great entertainers, Burnley, who went and put four goals past Bournemouth. What on earth happened here? Because they'd only scored three previously all season. Yeah, funny one. A very unexpected result, I think, before the game. And to be honest, once he'd watched the highlights as well, I think Bournemouth had a few good chances. Quite scrappy goals, I think, from Burnley. The kind of goals you expect Burnley to score. Um, I'm not. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if they rose out of trouble. To be honest, Burnley. Yeah, I still think. I think the Europa thing was such a big issue for them, and it was so. The players were so unaccustomed to that. The demands of European football. That now they've got a free run. They've got one game every weekend. Defensively, they still look pretty good. Right. Um, I'm not sure they'll be scoring four goals every week, but they've got. If Aaron Lennon's in that kind of form. Yeah, it was good to see him uh, starring, and particularly scoring. I mean, the one thing that Lennon's never been good at over the course of his career is he's never scored enough goals. Um, so it was a good finish at the far post, and then he did some good kind of more traditional Aaron Lennon work down the right for uh, one of the later goals. So, mm. yeah, nice to see him firing. I'm okay. surprised to say, see that Lennon said he thought the win was coming, because I don't think many people did think it was coming. I think they've been desperately poor. But they brought Vidra in and they brought Lairton back at right back and it seemed to make a difference. Excellent. Their four goals eclipsed by the five City put past Cardiff. Gundogan the key to everything, is that right, Raf? Oh, he certainly was this weekend. He was outstanding. Um, Cardiff, I felt, might actually go for it and try to press City the way that Leon did, but perhaps they didn't quite trust themselves to to do that and they gave they gave too much space to City and essentially if you... If you lay off City, there's only, I think, a question of time before they will unpick you and find an opening. And with goal after goal, you could just see Cardiff's belief just draining and mm. they just didn't know what to do anymore. But Gunnar was, was very good. I think the the criticism for him has been, or the, the question mark is, can he play that way under pressure when teams are really up against it and don't give you a lot of time? Is he good enough to be in that role? But certainly when you give him time... He can play as well as anyone as a creator in that in that deep right. deep creation role. There are five outstanding goals from City in different ways, but I thought the most interesting was the first one because it started from an Edison throwout, and it was it looked set to be a really quick counter attack, and Cardiff actually got numbers back quite quickly, and I just thought it was really intelligent the way City slowed the game, which is what Guardiola likes. He likes teams to put together passes so that they can get into their kind of correct structure and they almost waited for Cardiff to recover and then went for them it was almost like a you know like two cyclists dueling where where you know one guy's just got so much more that he almost lets the his opponent recover and then kind of kills him for a second time and uh, yeah it just showed the two who scored that first one Michael Uh, it was swept home by uh, Aguero yeah okay that was Aguero and then the 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 Riyad Mahrez the first of his brace there were 20 passes in the build-up, which is the longest move for a goal in the Premier League this season. Yeah, and yet another one of those City goals where it's just so easy for the finisher because it's squared into almost a six-yard box between the posts. They score so many simple finishes from brilliantly complex moves. Right. What's the latest on Leroy Sané and his issues with uh, with, with Germany, Raf? Well, we'll have to see. Um, I'm sure he'll be in the squad again. Uh-huh. But the fact that Tony Cross spoke out so publicly about his lack of application and uh, maybe one or two body language issues should should come as a concern for him because reading between the lines, that was one of the, the reasons why Löw felt he couldn't quite trust him to go um, as one of the non-starters to the World Cup. I think there was a concern that he would not take it well, being so confident and perhaps even feeling that he should be in the team. So if one of the senior players feels... Um, feels that he should make the statement publicly having done so first I understand in a dressing room face to face 
it is a bit of a warning sign. And it's not the first time and it won't be the last time that a young player who does really well at club level comes to the national team and then gets slapped down a little bit by the more experienced pros for... Okay, so it wasn't that controversial what Crow said in Germany? Controversial? No, it was not controversial. I think over here people jumped to conclusions and wrongly felt that this was another incident of a white, blue-eyed, blonde guy criticising someone who looks a little bit different, but there is no connotations at all about this. Tony Cross himself was for years criticised for lax body language right. by other players. Uh, Michael Balak had the same issue, was called arrogant by other players. So this is, this is not about this. This is really about a young player who, at the Confed Cup, felt he didn't want to take part because he had a nose operation. Someone, people in the German FA felt that was probably not the right thing for him to do. He should have taken that chance. And this is an issue that's been mentioned before, even going back to his youth days at Schalke, I think, where he was once substituted after 20 minutes because he just didn't do enough on the pitch. So, Alrighty. No racial connotations. Some say it with flowers, some say it with chocolates. And listeners, our friends at Beer 52 want to help us say thank you for listening to The Totally Football Show by giving you a free case of craft beer. All you have to do is head to beer52.com totally to claim it. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries. Every month they focus on a new country or theme, and this time it's the Balkans, so this is your chance to sample grown-up drinks such as the 7.2% Croatian Citrus IPA, a Slovenian Black IPA, and a delightful 6% New England IPA from the Bulgarian brewery Aeljak. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can try your first case for free. You just pay £2.95 postage. So that's eight incredible craft beers, some bar snacks and a copy of Ferment magazine, all delivered with next day shipping. There's no minimum commitment with Beer 52. You can just take this free case, try the beers and see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Try it for yourself at beer52.com totally and claim your free case today. That's beer52.com totally. In the Football League, Gary Monk, who, like most people, is a former manager of Leeds, took his Birmingham side to Ellen Road and won. First defeat for Leeds under <laughs> their crazy manager, Marcelo Bielsa. They do stay top, though, after Borough drew with another of Monk's former club, Swansea. How about that? Uh, and there was an amazing goal at Villa Park. Did you see that, Adam? Did yeah, see- fantastic. Yeah. yeah. John McGinn. I love the way it bounced down the crossbar as well, which is right. essential for any, any good goal like that. Was it the goal of the weekend, though? Do you think Jovinho, perhaps? I'd go for McGinn, but I think you would go for Jovinho. Well, actually, here's Richard Sexton, who says, was John McGinn's volley on Saturday the greatest of all time? Perhaps, says Richard optimistically, the panel could compile a top five. Well, I think the problem with McGinn's goal was that he was on the losing side. So I think the goal was great in itself but it kind of loses something from being essentially irrelevant right whereas Marco van Basten's volley for oh, example yeah. won yeah, the, it's won hard the to championship so. or Totti's against Sampdoria my yeah. favourite would have to be Dejan Stankovic from yeah. the halfway line I don't see anybody beating that to volley in from the halfway line 
Mm. Goalkeeper wasn't in a great position. Was I, he? I don't care. <laughs> he pointed in from the halfway line. That was the most ridiculous goal. Uh, any any others you want to contribute? There's also one I uh, would suggest that uh, listeners seek out on YouTube, which is Jürgen Wegmann's goal of the season, 1988. How are you spelling that? Uh, W-E-G-M-A-N-N. Good. Wegmann. Which is the weirdest, strangest volley because it's sort of a cross between a volley and an overhead kick. But it's an unbelievable goal. Anyway, may I mention that Villa lost anyway 2-1 and got booed off in Steve Bruce's 100th game in charge. If you like all that kind of thing, as I mentioned, Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker. Spain. Ten-man Barcelona got held by Hirona, which means that Real Madrid have pulled level with them, Michael, on top of the Liga. Mm-hmm. They had a 1-0 win. Asensio scoring. He looked this time. <laughs> Where did you stand on his no-look shenanigans? Not didn't, that bothered. Didn't have a problem with it, but it didn't go in, did it? So yeah. I can't understand why people are going on about it. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, Alaves in third place and Celta Vigo fourth. Crikey. In Italy, it was a big win for the Inzaghis. The Inzaghi brothers, Pippo Inzaghi. His Bologna team beat Roma 2-0. There's all sorts of talk their manager might get fired. Their next, well, their opponent next weekend is Pippo's brother Simone Inzaghi's Lazio, who beat Genoa 4-1, so that's going to be a bit tasty. Uh, they'll be playing in the Rome derby, of course. Also next weekend, Juve-Napoli. Both those teams won their first and second right now, Rafa. Uh, yes, Ronaldo scored again. And I think, interestingly, the Gazette addressed it up. They were playing away at Frosinone, who were inaugurating their brand-new kind of 16,000-capacity stadium. And the Gazette rather, well, a little bit patronising. Their big headline on Saturday morning was um, Lilliput and Gulliver. They had kind of, obviously, Ronaldo was Gulliver, and, and they regarded Frosinone as very much the Lilliput Pucians of this uh, equation. But the exciting news was that Ronaldo, his celebration, do you remember how he was used to kind of run off on his own and then jump and then the, the, ta-da? He's now celebrating with his teammates. And when they score, he's hugging them and things. Will it last? I don't know. But there's all this talk in Italy about how he's been won over by the affection ever since that overhead kick. But I think even with, you know, the aftermath of the expulsion last week. So it's all very much love and kisses there. Uh, there was all sorts of excitement at San Siro, but we'll get into that uh, on Golazzo on Wednesday, Michael, because we need to talk about... Federico Chiesa embracing his brother. Did you see that? I did see that. That was so touching, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I, and yeah. afterwards, the camera zooms in on the... So this is Federico Chiesa. Son of. Enrico Chiesa, who famously, when he was at Siena, scored and then ran over because Federico was a ball boy and he hugged him and etc. The boy's cheeks blushed red as he gazed at his goal-scoring father with, with filial pride and all this. Anyway, the scene was reenacted to the delight of Enrico and Mrs Chiesa, who were watching from the stands, after Federico basically ran the length of the field in Jovinho-esque fashion, doing one-twos and all that kind of thing. He then managed to finish off somebody else's chance and score. I think Fiorentina's third goal at the weekend. He then looks round for his brother, uh, Lorenzo, who was um, way down the other end. He bombs down the other end of the field, points to him, and then gives him a big hug and then run, runs back on to continue with the game. And, and the camera zooms in on the younger Chiesa, who goes bright red, poor chap. You, you know when you, you, your family hug you. It's awful. Anyway, um, oh, and Jovinho did that 82-metre coast-to-coast and excitingly, his shot, I think, went off two posts as well. So that made it even more special. 
Uh, do you want to talk about Grant Holt joining wrestling? Did anyone watch No, it? nobody watched it. Only wrestling fans watched it. And who would be a wrestling fan? Anyway, I he basically... I was when I was young, to be fair. Were you? Yeah. Some people still are. Producer Ben's a very big wrestling fan. He does a wrestling podcast called Parts Unknown. Adam, I'm guessing you're not a wrestling fan. I was, but I grew out of Shawn it. I don't Michaels, know how. Shawn Michaels, Diesel, <laughs> Undertaker, yeah, Razor Ramon. Yeah. yeah, OK. Yeah. Well, Grant Holt is very much a wrestling fan. And to everyone's surprise, in a 40-man Royal Rumble in Norwich, which I'm not familiar with the rules of these things, but I think you start off with 40 people in the ring and you get knocked out one by one. The last man standing was Grant Holt, who was dressed in civvies. He'd kind of come on as a surprise in an entirely unplanned and spontaneous development of this uh, Norfolk-based Royal Rumble. So uh, there you go. Well, you can watch the video if you like. It, you know, it's quite physical. I quite enjoyed it. Um, so hold on. Yeah. You don't enjoy being hugged by family members. I didn't say I didn't. Just <laughs> yeah, when you you're did. 14 <laughs> and, you know, there are TV but cameras. But you do enjoy it when random man... Oh, I like seeing other men hug ...grapple different yeah. body parts. And, yeah. There's nothing contradictory about that okay. at all, Rafa. You and your subtext. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. OK, more Premier League. How about... Arsenal-Everton. Yeah, that was one of those games if you only look at the, the scoreline, mm-hmm. you can be led very much astray. Thoughts? Why? Everton were were the better side in the first half, most definitely in the opening exchanges. Uh, Czech did really well to keep them from giving Arsenal, I think, just a real hiding in that in that opening period because it was quite incessant. Everton were clever enough to know that if they pressed high against Arsenal, they'd have joy because they are so devoted to, to building from the back, even if it's not a good idea. And, you know, while I think it's very good that Emery's trying to infuse his playing style there, I think there still has to be intelligence when you do it. Mm-hmm. Lacazette with a, with a phenomenal goal. That sort of changed uh, the momentum of the match a little bit. And then, you know... A Boomerang not being flagged offside was was absolutely ridiculous, a shocking decision, which Silva pointed out afterwards. Uh, I thought Everton were stronger in the duels, just especially in the first half, looked more off a complete side in what they did on the ball uh, and off it. And I just think Arsenal's transition is not going as well as perhaps the results have shown. I, th- I think they've been fortunate in a sense. But if we if we have to cut uh, Chelsea some slack, I mean, Emery's got a more difficult job now in, tr- in, in trying to... They've always been good going forward, but in terms of making them solid defensively, they kept a clean sheet here, Rav. They did, although they have, as Melissa said, they had really Peter Cech to thank for that. They right. were all over the place defensively in the first half. They were so susceptible to counter-attacks. You have this problem when you play with Mesut Ozil and Ramsey that the midfield has a tendency of getting overrun. Now, in Torreira, they have now a guy who's like an orthodox holding midfielder. I think that protects the back four, but you still don't have the issue with the fullbacks being a little bit exposed because Aubameyang on the flank doesn't really come back either. So there are still issues. I don't think Emery has the harder job in the sense that uh, he needs to transform the team's playing style is still an Arsenal team playing Arsenal football. He just needs to work on some of the defensive transitions, some of the details, making them more compact. But mm. I think the change isn't that drastic. 
than going from Conte to to Sari okay. to a complete possession style. And there are some encouraging signs about this Arsenal team, but at the same time, you feel that there are still some some real issues. And I wonder if that, for me, the bigger issue, which isn't so much tactical, but the the mindset of that comfort zone that they the whole club has been in for so many years, whether Emery is the right guy to really shake them up and say, unless you perform all the time, unless you play with total commitment and don't accept anything but a win, whether he is that guy that can really galvanise this team to that extent, that is my my big question mark. I'm still not convinced. Are you seeing progress, Michael? And also, how much trouble is Marco Silva in? I don't think Silva's in much trouble. I thought Everton played well and were, were quite fortunate. Yeah, it's a funny one with Emery. I mean, like Melissa says, the results have been good, but the, the performances have just been slightly unconvincing. I thought the major problem yesterday was without the ball in, in every aspect of the play, whether it was pressing high, they got bypassed. I know Torreira and Xhaka both tacklers but I think there's a question about the lack of discipline Torreira got a silly early booking which he did a lot in Serie A and there was one crazy defensive incident where Mustafi made quite a good interception and then immediately conceded the ball and Socrates in his desperation to cover the mistake brought down Walcott I think on the edge of the box in such a clumsy fashion he had to go off injured when Mustafi had already been limping from going down awkwardly himself and they're just both quite clumsy and going forward I'm just not sure he's uh, I'm not sure Emery has really any closer to finding his preferred combination. I mean, you look at the the side yesterday, Aubameyang's their best striker and was playing on the left. Ozil's the best number 10 and was playing on the right. They weren't combining. And uh, Emery slightly sheepishly admitted after the game in the press conference that uh, just before Lacazette's brilliant goal, he was planning to bring him off, which I think is a sign that it really wasn't working going forward. So they're kind of grinding out wins, but I think this was probably their least impressive performance so far, to be honest. All right. Okay. I think also it brought into sharp relief Everton's lack of a real goal scorer up front. I think if there had been anyone uh, in the habit of goal scoring, they would have taken one or two of those chances. But Sigurdsson was almost playing as a false nine at times. Cavett Lewin holds the ball up well, but doesn't really exude much of a threat, I mm. think, with the ball. And Richarlison is this really powerful winger who gets into good positions, but you don't really trust him to necessarily make the right decision all the time because Theo Walker always wanted to play as a centre forward so there's that I think he would have been disappointed not to play up front yesterday actually Mm. you know considering Arsenal's defence's lack of pace he did get through in that uh, just before half time when Czech made a save but yeah I think he would be disappointed not to start up front right Uh, elsewhere Brighton lost at home to Spurs Spurs fans singing there's only one Chas Hodges Chas Hodges is one of our own and Spurs are on their way to Wembley in honour of the man who penned that famous Ode Ditty. him. Ditty. Let's go with Ditty. I think and Brighton played uh, one of their numbers at half-time as well. Oh, did they? Which is nice. Brighton are quite good for that. They're quite a... Away fans like going to Brighton. They're, they're a welcoming, accommodating yeah. club, I think. Well, the Spurs were quite happy going home as well with their <laughs> three points. Did they deserve them? That was a big result for Tottenham, I think. That would have been four defeats in a row. And uh, they've got Huddersfield and Cardiff coming up now, so it sort of changes the mood around the place. And right. It feels like they're over that little bit of a potential crisis if they had lost. Although I think it was have... good to see Lamella score as well but yeah. back-to-back weekends so that that's important for Tottenham. They look now like not so much as, as Liverpool it's all been said that they don't have the strength and depth but you look at Mora now you look at Song coming back Lamella they do have some options there. Spurs midweek have Watford in the cup uh, so that's at Wembley is it Michael? No Wembley's not available and White Hart Lane obviously isn't ready so they're playing in Milton Keynes uh, which personally I think is very odd decision odd situation I mean, that's not what a home game is. I think if you can't put on 
a home game at your regular home stadium or your temporary home stadium, then you should just switch the tie. I mean, uh-huh. playing in Milton Keynes isn't... I just, yeah. I, I, it's a yeah. slightly separate issue, but if you're picking and choosing where you're playing your home games, I think that sets you, you, a slightly dangerous precedent in terms of teams sacrificing home games to play it wherever they want. I think it's bizarre. should be at Vicarage Road. Okay. Uh, you saw what for this weekend, Rafa. I did, You yeah. went along to your favourite Premier League ground. Yeah, I think it's everyone's favourite Premier League ground, isn't it? Uh, but I mean, it's Craven pretty Cottage. nice. Craven Cottage, yeah. yeah. But what do you think, Adam? Where's it's your favourite so ground? It doesn't have to be Premier League, actually. It could be anywhere. No, I, I enjoy Fulham. Yeah, it's yeah. good to them back. I used to live in Putney, and uh, yeah, it's there a gr- great walk to the ground as well. Isn't it, though? Melissa? I like going to Selhurst Park. It's weird. Because it's it's not the biggest. The facilities are really bad, especially yeah. if you're there to cover the f- game. You're always getting impeded views. But it's so close to the ground and the fans really, if they're up for it and if they get any sort of encouragement from their side, it, it, it feels like a proper football game mm. at a f- proper fo- old school football ground. Okay. Michael, do you have a preference? I'm a big fan of St. James's Park. Right. I think there's just something about the atmosphere there. Whether it's good or bad, either way, it's quite unique, I think. Feels like you're at an event. Uh, so back to uh, Watford Fulham. Anyway, yeah, so uh, but on Saturday you went to Craven Cottage and you saw Fulham and Watford draw 1-1. Anything we should know about this game? Yeah, I think there were lots of interesting things happening in this game. First of all, it was the proverbial game of two halves because Watford were all over Fulham and should have really been out of sight by, by the end of the first half. They were so superior, they pressed Fulham. Um, Fulham very much, dare I say, looked like a championship team uh, for large spells, completely unable to keep the ball in midfield. Overrun, um, Schürrle, Vieto, and Mitrovic had absolutely nothing. No, no ball. The ball was just coming straight back. And then the second half, things really changed. He took off uh, McDonald, Yukanovic, uh, and that made a big difference because he was just not able to play. I think in that position, certainly not against half decent opposition. And uh, they went from a three in midfield to a two, but um, actually had more control because. They had much better players, well, at least one much better player in that position. Um, and they Who could, came on for McDonald then? Akita Pet came on uh-huh. and uh, he moved up a little bit and then Sari had just more of the ball. And in fact, the fact there was only two of them, um, and Johansson is not a great player either, but the fact there was only two and four uh, players up front just made it harder for, for Watford to cut down these passes. And they just went a little bit more direct but more effectively because they had one more player to pass the ball to. And uh, Fulham Fulham and Mitrovic and Schürrle and to an extent Vieto is a little bit raw and a little bit sort of inconsistent in his in his movement, his decisions, um, have enough, I think, to get the odd result. But overall, you wonder whether especially that defence and that midfield will be able to stay up, I fear for them a little bit. And oh. Watford, I think, conversely, you have to say that they are in that position because they have a really, really strong side. And a settled one too. Like Wolves, they've named the same lineup in all six league games so far. Yeah. Even though Troy Deeney says he's playing with three broken toes. I mean, I've mentioned it before, but I've I've been with a broken toe twice. So, you know, hats off to Troy Deeney. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So Watford, <laughs> Watford kind of threw it away a little bit. And when they stopped pressing, or perhaps they found it much harder to press once McDonald was off, um... They just looked a little bit sloppy themselves. Um, so it was interesting. Really entertaining game. Um, and I think two sides that... Well, certainly one side in Watford that are definitely worth 
worth the the hype. The okay. Yeah. I was looking at some of the numbers from Fulham, and they've conceded the most shots on target, most big chances, most errors leading to shots. And I'm kind of surprised how sloppy they've been because they did finish the season really well yeah. in the Championship, but they just it does look far too open. Uh, intrepid supporters who made it all the way to Selhurst Park and far-flung south-east London were entertained by a nil-nil draw with Newcastle. Uh, Crystal Palace have now failed to find the net at home in any of their three fixtures there this campaign, even though Zaha was playing this time. That's not good. Uh, yeah, Hodgson was a little bit frustrated, it seems, with so much media fuss around Zaha and his complaints about the challenge last week. Well, he made um, them. Well, I think that was his point. He was annoyed at Zaha. Oh, I see. Sorry, right, For yeah. making a thing about yeah. it and the speculation afterwards. Um, again, Palace created enough chances to win the game. It was Sacco this time. He pretty much missed an open goal header. And they just dropped too many points because they missed chances. No, we blame Benteke a lot, but there's been some culprits this season. I remember they lost to Watford narrowly because uh, Joel Ward missed pretty much a you know two-yard chance in the last minute. Sacco here. They're just so frustrating to watch All because... Right. Uh, you know, they're gradually proving Jules right, which I think is the, the worst thing of all. Wow. Well, a long way to go, of course. Also down in the danger zone, Huddersfield, who took the lead away at Leicester, but ended up losing 3-1. Is David Wagner being found out, Rafa? No, I think that's an incredibly harsh thing to say. Um, found out means that there was this great mystery about how Huddersfield, Huddersfield are playing, and now people have cracked the code, but there was... <laughs> Everyone could see what they're, what they're doing. It's based on, on organization, on energy, on pressing. And when it works, it can be very effective. But when only one run is wrong or you don't win the ball in, in, the, in the area that you're trying to, then you're hugely open. And of course, individually, you're outmatched from, from the get-go before, before ball is kicked. And I think it was always an attempt to defy gravity. Mm. Um, the fact that it worked out last year is huge credit to the team and to Wagner. The fact that it might not work out for a second year, I think is to be expected, unfortunately. There's only so much you can do with these players. I see. Uh, Claude Puel, in the meantime, uh, with at his disposal, a team which involves one of the brightest prospects in the Premier League in James Madison, would you say, Adam? Yeah, definitely. I think he's a really interesting player and he's playing further forward under Puel. I really like the way he can receive the ball. He's back to go and just turn. It's almost like... Eden Hazard, the way he sort of turns away to his right. Mm. Interesting player, and I think it's surprising with Puel. He always seems to be, I think even now he's top of the list for the sack race, and people think he's going to go, but he, the ninth in the league. I'm not sure what more he could be doing in terms yeah. of results. Three wins from six. I think that probably covers everything that we need to cover. For the, unless There was a couple of interesting results from maybe more minor European leagues. Go on. Uh, PSV beat Ajax 3-0. Did they? Uh, obviously a big fixture at the top of the Eredivisie. Mm. PSV now managed by Mark van Bommel. Indeed. And uh, in Switzerland, yes. uh, young boys thrashed Basel 7-1, which again is a, a meeting between the top two. Basel won the league eight years in a row. Young boys won it. Last year. Um, coming into this weekend, they were already eight points clear at the top of the ever-competitive uh, Swiss <laughs> Super League. Yeah, and this game was also unusual because the seven goals were scored by seven different players, oh. which you don't see very often. You don't, do you? I wonder what their uh, margin is at the top right now. We can update that on Thursday in Thursday's Totally Football Show. Before we wrap up this one, uh, let's get the odds on some of uh, the many matches we've been discussing today. Over to producer Ben, who's been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. I've got Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line, as always. And Lee, let's talk about uh, the League Cup. 
because there are a couple of juicy ties coming up. Let's talk about Liverpool taking on Chelsea. Can I get the first goal scorer market on this one, please? You can indeed. And it looks like it'll be a sea of red here from our betting. All the top bets are Liverpool players. Salah's the favourite at 7-2, followed by Sturridge, Mane, Firmino. It's only then you get down to Chelsea star Hazard at 11-2, the same price as Shaqiri. Elsewhere, it's Man U versus Derby. Man U have real trouble with promoted sides. Derby aren't promoted yet. They may not be promoted at all. But, you know, uh, what's going to go on here when Lampard goes up against his old mentor, Mourinho? Well, Paul Popper wants them to attack, attack, attack. And we think they might do just that. They're 1-6 to six to beat Derby at home. The draw's 11-2 and the visitors are massive 12-1. to one, But I'm always reluctant to talk up United at the minute. Uh, Back to the Premier League and Burnley had perhaps the best result of the weekend, 4-0 versus Bournemouth. Um, Can they make it back into the top half and sort of be Burnley again? Well, I don't think anyone foresaw their victory in the weekend. That massive thumping of Bournemouth dramatically improving their odds for us. But they're still third favourites for the drop, ahead of the likes of Newcastle even, and behind only Huddersfield and Cardiff. But they're now 8-1 to to finish in the top half again. That's coming massively. Maybe they're back on song. And a result which we've kind of glossed over in the show. Uh, Arsenal, pretty impressive against very weak opposition in the Europa League. What are their odds looking like for winning that tournament? Well, at this stage of the season, Arsenal are second favourites in the Europa League, which might sound slightly mad. They're 6-1 behind only Chelsea at 4-1. Um, that puts Arsenal above the likes of Unai Emery's former team, Sevilla, in the betting, who, at 13-1, might be more tempted for some punters. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Ten points now. <laughs> the margin for young boys uh, at the top of the Swiss League, which may or may not be called the Super League, Adam. I don't know. Apologies, Swiss listener. Anyway, Melissa, thanks for coming down. Is there anything you want to plug in terms of your other appearances, you know? Uh, I've got a big interview coming up with Jurgen Klopp that Ooh. documents his three years in, in charge of Liverpool. Which, Have you already done the interview? No, uh-huh. it will happen this week and it will go out on the 8th of October and throughout the rest of that week. Obviously, the 8th of October 2015 is when he signed his contract to become Reds manager. Excellent. He's, he's a lot of fun to talk to, isn't he, Rafa? He is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Excellent. Well, I look forward to, uh, to, to that. Adam, thanks ever so much for coming in. No problem. Raphael, a delight to see you. Thank you, James. When are you next back? I think in a couple of weeks' time. And you're going to be on the goal show next time that Who's interview. Yes. Yeah, so that's good. And Michael Cox, splendid stuff as ever. Thank you. Well done, you listener. We'll catch up with you Thursday. Have a great time till then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And make sure you check out our other football podcasts, the revamped Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the brand new Totally Scottish Football Show. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. 
So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.